Hi, I'm Damon Frank, and you're listening to The Recovered Life Show, and this is an episode of How I Did It. Every episode, I talk with someone in recovery about how they've been able to stay sober. We dive into what their life and addiction was like and what their life in sobriety is like now. Remember, addiction is a life-threatening condition, and the information in this episode is provided as a resource only and is not to be used or relied on for any diagnostic or treatment purposes. This is not a substitute when professional diagnosis or treatment is needed. Now, let's jump into the discussion and find out how they did it. I'd like to welcome you to the show. Why don't we start out by introducing yourself, tell us your name, what addiction you suffer from, and how long you've been sober. Sure. Thanks for having me. My name is Jennifer Storm. I am both an addict and an alcoholic recovering. I've been in recovery since November of 1997. So God willing, in a little over two months, I will have 25 years of continuous uh, sobriety and recovery. So when you look back, when was the first time that you noticed a problem? My drinking was alcoholic from the moment I picked up. I definitely believe in a predisposition to the disease of addiction and alcoholism. I do believe that they are diseases. Uh, my entire family on both my mother and my father's side had the, the disease of addiction and alcoholism. And literally the first time I picked up, I drank in excess. I blacked out and I never was able to drink differently. So it really started from the moment I picked up and I was 12 years old when that happened. So tell us a little bit about your life growing up. Did you have members of your family that suffered from addiction? Did you identify early on that maybe you were different from your friends and people around you? Maybe you can share a story or an experience or a memory with us about your childhood. Yeah, as I indicated, my whole family was just kind of riddled with alcoholics and addicts. And so my mom and my dad, I think, did their best to try to keep myself and my two older brothers like away from the family members that were super dysfunctional. Um, yet they really weren't aware of their own dysfunctions in our home, right? So, you know, while my parents tried to do better and be better, and for the most part, were pretty functional, they too were still using under our roof. So, you know, my father suffered from uh, untreated trauma due to child abuse. My mother suffered from untreated trauma due to child abuse. My father went to Vietnam and had PTSD from being first infantry in Vietnam. And so they self-medicated. My, you know, they smoked marijuana, they drank. My mom took a daily Valium. And they didn't see these like as addictions because their lives weren't dysfunctional, like the rest of the people in my family who were like losing jobs and losing their homes or going to jail. So, you know, I grew up around addiction and alcoholism despite my parents' really strong desires to keep us away from that. Because again, they didn't even recognize that their own use was dysfunctional and, you know, and addictive and alcoholic. And my grandmother, who, this was my mom's mom, Irish, came right over from Ireland to Plymouth, Massachusetts, and was an amazing woman. I absolutely adored her. And she was funny. I just always remember her being so funny. 
And that was because she was often drunk. Um, she lived with us on and off. And I always knew she drank, but I didn't know, you know, what that meant, right? I didn't know what she was drinking. Um, but she had a real problem with, with whiskey early on and then switched to beer. But she would sit in our house and sit in our dining room and, and drink a case of beer every day. And so I just, that was norm for me. It was, it was, that was just what I grew up around. I would love it if you could share with us what happened. You know, what happened to your life as a result of addiction? What did your life become and how did you live your life day to day? So I used drugs and alcohol as a means to cope with a childhood sexual assault. So I was raped when I was a kid and drugs and alcohol became my comfort. They became my release, my escape. And so I drank in excess every time because I didn't want to feel. I was always running from my feelings. And obviously, when you're living a life like that, it just invites more bad scenarios, more bad opportunities, more bad situations, and more trauma. And so I just layered those traumas on top of one another and just added to my dysfunction and added to my need to use more, drink more. And I lost everything, right? I lost jobs. I lost partners. I lost respect. I lost dignity. Uh, I lost money. I spent a night in jail. I broke the law. I broke my own moral codes. Like anything you can think of, I lost. The problem with those of us, though, in addiction is that everyone thinks they know what your bottom is going to be, right? Everyone thinks that, oh, you lost a job. So that must be the thing that's going to propel you into recovery or, oh, your relationship just ended or, oh, you got arrested. And the reality is for those of us who suffer with addiction, it is a very, very personal spiritual bottom that has to happen. And nobody can see that and nobody can predict it. And while some people, yes, may have gotten sober at like this benchmark or that benchmark, I can assure you that everyone's bottom has a basement and everyone's basement has a grave. Um, and so, you know, for me, it came down to I literally couldn't live the way I was living anymore. And that didn't mean I turned to recovery. It, mean, it meant that I turned to significant use and abuse and then ultimately the decision to try to kill myself. And thankfully, you know, that that did not happen and I survived and then I went to treatment and then I went into recovery and I started to explore what healing looked like and what I was going to need and require to truly live a life free from these substances that almost killed me. You know, so today, gosh, almost 25 years later, I know it works for me. I have um, a really great sense of self. I know myself better than anyone on the planet. So I know when I'm doing well. I know when I need maybe to up my spiritual practices, when I need to engage more of my healthy coping mechanisms. I had to put down those things that were hurting me and killing me and then find new things to pick up. And that was really hard. And it took me a long time because there wasn't a prescribed program for those of us who are, are dealing with sexual violence and that trauma and the substances that we use to cope right? It wasn't just about for me putting down the drink and the drug. I had to get into the wound and I had to heal the wound because the drugs and alcohol were the bandages that I was putting over that wound. And they never worked because I never really treated the wound itself. So when I got sober and clean, I started to treat that wound and I do that daily. And that's truly how I have maintained and sustained my recovery for as long as I have. So let's go back to your bottom, your bottom with addiction. What was going through your head the day 
that you decided to get sober? Did you make a decision? Was it challenging? Tell us what you were feeling and why ultimately you made that decision to try to get sober. Yeah, so to reiterate, I mean, like I said, everyone's bottom has a basement. Everyone's basement has a grave. I believe that. And for me, it was this just spiritual pit of despair. And it was right at, you know, my mother, I had lost my mother to breast cancer in July of 1997, and she died in my arms. And it was an incredibly traumatic, beautiful, spiritual, heartbreaking experience. And as I had indicated, I was layering and layering and layering trauma on top of trauma and just covering it all up with these bandages that I called, you know, cocaine and crack and alcohol. And eventually the death of my mom just... There wasn't a bandage big enough. There wasn't a drink deep enough. There wasn't a hit strong enough to conceal that pain for me. And so I didn't think that I could find another way to live. So I that's when I went from that basement almost into that grave and I almost died. And thank God I didn't. Thank God my brothers found me and got me to a hospital in time. And I woke up the next day and found myself alive and was a little surprised. And also then had this kind of clarity and this sense of purpose that I don't know where it came from. We call it, you know, spiritual awakening. Maybe it's a moment of clarity. I don't know what it was, but I had this understanding, this intuitive knowing that I was never going to have to live that way again. I was never going to have to suffer in that way again. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what recovery or being clean or being sober meant. I just knew that I had to pivot. I had to make a hard pivot and do something different and take guidance and listen to people and dive into my wounds and start to expose them. After you decided to get sober, what did you do? What actions did you take? You know, I'd love it if you could discuss your first month of sobriety. What worked for you? What didn't? I went to rehab, which is, you know, kind of prescribed, right? The standard 28 days. After that, I went to a halfway house I made some mistakes. I made some early sobriety mistakes. I got into a relationship too soon because, duh, that was a source of comfort. It was also an escape. And, you know, it wasn't until I moved to State College PA and really embedded myself in 12-step programs and met people and started creating a community there. Then I found a trauma therapist and I started to really dive deep into all of those reasons that I was using, right? Those springboards that would always get me back into the bottle or back into the pipe. I had to look at those things and I had to heal those because if I didn't, I knew eventually I would jump off one of those springboards because it would come up and it would hit me too fast and I wouldn't be expecting it and I wouldn't have dealt with it and it would propel me back into my addiction. And so I really started digging deep. And a lot of that work in the beginning was done through writing because I didn't trust a lot of people. I didn't feel comfortable speaking those those scary truths out loud. So I would leave them to the confines of my journal. And then when I found a, a good therapist then I finally started opening up there, and then I slowly started opening up in different spaces. But truly, and, and even to this day, traditional 12-step places are not safe for people like me to talk about childhood sexual abuse uh, and the sexual trauma and the issues and the complications around that. The rooms just weren't safe. So I had to find a safe place to do that. And so it was in different recovery rooms. And it's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about creating resources 
for the over 90% of us who use drugs and alcohol as a result of a sexual violence, um, untreated trauma from sexual violence. So I've written books, you know, my first book, Blackout Girl, my follow-up to that, which is Awakening Blackout Girl. And I've just written a curriculum, a 10-week support group curriculum called Awakening that is really tailored for those of us who have suffered sexual trauma and then have used drugs and alcohol as a coping mechanism because it's a unique trauma and it's a unique process and path that if not addressed properly often leads to relapse and then unfortunately death. So what's it like now, now that you're sober, tell us some things that have happened as a result of you being in recovery. Gosh, life in recovery is, it's magical, man. I mean, things that you never thought could happen, right? Like I was a mess when I got clean and sober. I um, barely graduated high school, didn't have a functional relationship or understanding of myself, had really bad relationships with money, did not think an education was in my future, did not think a career was in my future. And slowly as I began to kind of peel back my own layers you know, I went to college and I became the first person in my entire family to graduate from college. And then I went on to get this amazing job in victims' rights and victim services. And I started to kind of give back in a way that felt really intentional and meaningful for me. Being a victim of crime, you know, in the 80s and not having that kind of support. Um, you know, and I moved on to, to be appointed by the governor to multiple posts and positions in the state of Pennsylvania. And I mean, I was a person that I walked into the courthouse and I was hired by a district attorney who held my juvenile record in his hand and basically, you know, gave me a chance. And so, you know, the stigma that usually follows folks in addiction, I was able to really break through that and and do a lot of firsts. I was often the youngest person at the table. I was often the only woman at many tables when I was working in criminal justice and juvenile justice and writing legislation and lobbying for legislation and creating changes that really were meaningful and purposeful. And then I published my first memoir in 2008. I went to Hazelden, Betty Ford, to their publishing um, arm, and they published my first memoir. And then I've published five books since then and have been able to travel all over the world, sharing my story. I love public speaking. It is absolutely hands down my favorite thing to do. I love imparting the knowledge and and the information and the resources that I have. And right now I'm deep in this curriculum because I've, you know, I've done this now for 20 some years and we still don't have adequate treatment for people like me. And it's frustrating. And I watch people relapse and I watch people die. And I just found out that a friend of mine died two weeks ago, and he was a survivor of sexual violence. And that sexual violence was unfortunately never properly treated. And he went back out and he used and he died. And so now my purpose in life is to to spread the message as far and wide as I can, that there is healing out there. There is a way to navigate through all of that childhood trauma and release yourself of the need to use. Um, So that's really, that's been the greatest gift that I have in recovery. What would be your advice to someone that is deciding whether they should get sober? You know, someone might be listening to this right now and they're on the fence about if they can do it, should they get sober? Should they try? Maybe they've tried and it hasn't worked. What advice would you give to them? I think if you're on the fence about recovery, there's a reason you climbed up on the fence, right? So it's not like you're in a yard staring at the fence from a far place, like you're sitting on it. And so you're, you're 
dangling between two choices. You're, you're, you know, you got one foot in your past and one foot in the potential future. And what I would say to you is that there is so much waiting on that other path and it's scary and it's uncertain. And in many ways it might be harder than it is initially to use. I can tell you though, that in the long run, the hard that you might face in the beginning is going to give way to such a beautiful ease and such a beautiful way of life that's going to give you permanent freedom as opposed to getting off that fence and continuing in the using world and in that life of covering up and concealing. You're just creating more harm for yourself. You're creating more layers of pain and suffering and trauma. And when you begin to step into recovery and you start living new moments and new hours and new days and new weeks as a recovering person, you're storing, you're putting deposits in the bank of recovery, right? So in honesty, in transparency, in health, as opposed to continuing to put deposits in your death and in your suffering and in your pain. So again, while the initial process of getting clean and sober can be really hard because you've got to go through some of the emotions, you've got to dig up the stuff, you've got to work through that. And I'm not going to tell you that that's easy. And it's the most rewarding work you will ever do because once you do it, you're going to have this freedom and this whole new life ahead of you that you never, ever dreamt of or imagined. And it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a process. But I promise you, if you continue every day making those good deposits, man, your bank is going to fill up and your life is going to be amazing. And even if every now and then you make a withdrawal, right, if maybe you fall back, you relapse, you get some more feedback, it's not going to eliminate all those deposits that you made. Sometimes that's a part of the process of finding recovery and, and finding healing. And so just keep making those deposits on, on the right side of that fence and you'll have a life beyond your wildest imagination. That I can promise you. If you're listening to this episode and want to get sober, or maybe you're just struggling in your sobriety, possibly 12-step programs and large impersonal groups just aren't your thing. If you're seeking some personalized help on your sobriety journey, I invite you to book a free Get to Know You call today. During the call, we can explore a custom personal recovery game plan that can help you get on track to live your best recovered life. Set up your call by going to recoveredlife.us forward slash call. Don't put this off. You're worth it. Go to recoveredlife.us forward slash call or check out the show notes for more information. 